0: This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today.
1: Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray Show.
0: Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm so glad you took a few minutes to check in with me and see what's going on here at this, uh, my little corner of the internet. And as always, you know, if you like the conversations that you hear on the show, definitely tell your friends, like, share, and subscribe, follow wherever you get your podcasts and all of that. So today we're going to talk about something that's kind of near and dear to my heart. I mean, actually, I named this podcast Be Present because I'm always trying to stay mindful. And the word mindfulness, I'm sure you've heard it pop up. It's become really popular in our society over the past decade or so, as we've become more aware of the toll that stress and anxiety are taking on us collectively. So I looked up the definition of mindfulness, according to Merriam-Webster, just to get like the real, the real deal. So according to Merriam-Webster, mindfulness, the quality or state of being mindful the practice of maintaining a non-judgmental state of heightened or complete awareness of one's thoughts emotions or experiences on a moment to moment basis also such a state of awareness so th- this is so timely right how difficult is us or, or is it for us to maintain a non-judgmental state of complete awareness i mean this is something that i've been trying to do for years um, I don't know if you've heard of John Kabat-Zinn. I'm sure many of my listeners here have. A biologist from MIT did some incredible research. And in 1979, he created a program called MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, that offered people the possibility of developing a different relationship to stress. And this was so successful. It's still being taught today. And his dedication to teaching these practices has really helped to bring this to the mainstream. And if you haven't heard of him, I recommend checking out his books, especially Wherever You Go, There You Are, one of my favorites. So I love to talk about this subject. It's something that I've been really trying to incorporate in my life, even titling this podcast, Be Present, as a reminder to myself to try to stay in the present moment. I think this is going to be a lifelong practice. So... I'm really happy to welcome my guest today. Her book came across my desk, Dr. Mary Martin, and it's called Mindfulness for Financial Advisors. And I was interested in talking with her about it. Mary is a trauma-sensitive mindfulness educator and guide. She went through training at Brown University, got her doctorate from New York University's School of Training and Learning, And her book is called Mindfulness for Financial Advisors, but I think this information can be used by anybody. It's really valuable. So I'm happy to welcome Mary to the podcast. Thanks for taking some time. Thanks for having me, Diane. And joining me from my home state, sweltering Florida, (laughs) which I do miss. I love it there. Love my Floridians. So Mary, first of all, tell me how you became interested in mindfulness practices and maybe a little bit about your own journey of, of meditation and dipping into this world. Sure. Thank you for
1: asking. I practiced uh, transcendental meditation for years. I was actually raised by a Buddhist and a um, a seminarian, believe it or not, a Jesuit. And so I was always interested in meditation and And then I had this um, moment, this is is like jumping right into it. And it's only because you asked um, where um, in it was like 2003. I, gosh, I guess I'll jump right in. I was pregnant and didn't know it and I had a miscarriage and didn't know it. And like very pregnant. And a little after that, I overheard two people talking about me. And one said, wow, I can't believe that happened to Mary. And the other one said, of course, that happened to Mary. She doesn't live in her body. And I overheard this whole thing. And so I marched right over and I was like, that's really interesting. You know, t- tell me more about that. And she walked over to her bookcase and she gave me the book you just mentioned where you yes. go. There you are by John Kevin <laughs> Sin. And she was like, she says, look, sweetie, you just need to read this. And so and I did. I just it was, you know, that old saying when the the student is ready, the teacher appears. You know, so I I literally went home and read the book and I was like, wow, I've been doing life like wrong, you know, and I was in my early 30s and I was not a super, super young person. And I realized I, I just she was right. There was this I, I had lived kind of for my brain. I was like this, you know, brain walking around in a meat suit. And I lived for my striving and my achievements and my intellect and 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 and. I realized that there was this huge part of my existence that I was ignoring. You know, I had this body and yet I wasn't ignoring it because I always worked out. And so I was always fit. So I was paying this sort of really superficial attention to my body, but I wasn't actually inhabiting it. You know, I didn't know what it felt like on the inside to be me. And I'm not talking about, you know, my quads and my hamstrings, talking about my feelings, my emotions And it's because I wasn't paying attention to my body that I didn't notice that I was pregnant and that I didn't even notice when I was having a miscarriage. So I took up this practice and then became, you know, not really an evangelist, but it was so important to me that I switched up my whole life and i became a certified mindful schools teacher i started training for mbsr with brown i became a certified trauma sensitive teacher and then i brought it to an industry that i had been within for decades that you know sorely needed it which was financial services so i was sort of swimming in the water of financial services but this book is really for anybody and it's it's really a how to it's like how do i Access this, you know, how do I even begin to, to be mindful or have a mindfulness practice? Does that help?
0: Yes, I love that story and relating to the fact that we're we're walking around just meat suits totally disconnected. And I think so many people will be able to relate to that. And um, and I love that you also were a, a fan of that book because I found that uh wherever you go, there you are, life changing for me as well. And I yeah. hope that maybe people will rush out and, and check him out. But you actually took his program, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, I, I went to the source. Yeah. And I
1: I so I took MBSR because in order to be a teacher, you have to have taken MBSR several times and I took it live and I and it and it wasn't in the moment. I do have to say in the moment it was not it, it, it sort of it was a bit of a grenade. You know, it wasn't life changing in the moment. And because it because it's it's eight weeks long and it's constant practice. And then it sort of hits you. And now that now as a teacher, I see that as well. Students will say, you know, oh, and it's like magic. All of a sudden I see things differently or I experience myself differently or I listen differently. And and I'm I'm very quick to say it's not magic. It's practice. It's that you are doing this practice. In a kind of formal way, you know, sitting for twenty minutes or thirty minutes a day, whatever. But what you're doing when you're sitting doing this practice thing is your what you're doing is in the service of the rest of your life, of the rest of your day. So you're developing a habit. You're developing neural pathways um, that that make being more mindful. You're closer to your default state. So you're, you're creating, that's what habits are, you know, habits are these neural pathways and they don't come from nothing. They don't come from reading a book. I can tell you that much. They come from practice. It's like you get them one way and one way only. And it is by doing something over and over and over again.
0: Right. We're learning so much more about neuroplasticity and how that Mm. works today. I mean, that's a term that I had never heard of, heard of, you know, years ago. And I agree with you. It's so important that I think- It's a shame that you had to discover at 30, you know, we should be learning this at at 10, at eight, you know, as children so that we're able to cope as we get older. Um, I think, unfortunately, sometimes it takes your 30s or 40s when life starts kicking you in the face a couple of times (laughs) that you start looking at, okay, life's not working. What can I do And and this is such an amazing tool that you're putting in people's hands. So even though the title, and I want people to know that even though it says mindfulness for financial advisors, I I really believe as you do that this can be for anybody. But I think what was interesting as I was thinking about, you you focused on financial advisors in the book, I kind of equate them in a way to doctors because there's times that they have to deal with delivering bad news, yes. you know, or helping people through bad times. Yes. And and you address that in the book and you say, learning to listen is an important skill, you know, being, being discerning with your words. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so important, you know, especially in the charged times we're living in now where things fly out of your mouth or that email gets fired or that Facebook post gets posted that shouldn't happen. And how, how, what do you think about that?
1: Well, I, I urge people, I actually have a practice for it. And there's like a two minute long, a three minute long, a 10 minute long, but it's really pausing and you have to build it. You have to practice it. You have to build it into your day. And at first consciously think about it because we are so accustomed to quickly reacting to things to firing off that email, to hitting send, to posting the thing, and or somebody says something and you have a a response to it and it just flies right out of your mouth. And in my experience, there is pretty much nothing that can't wait. And there is nothing. and, And there are very few things once you consider them and once you ground yourself that you actually really had to do. But you you felt in the moment viscerally that you needed to do something, and that feeling is usually anxiety. Usually, you're doing something because you want to stop yourself from feeling so bad about how you just felt, and so you think posting the thing, or making a remark, or calling somebody—well, nobody calls anybody anymore—or sending the text, <laughs> right. you know—and and in the moment. that gives you this moment of relief, but then you've created this whole other problem for yourself because you've done something that really didn't need to be done. And so I really urge everyone before you literally, unless it's a matter of life and death. And sometimes there are those moments. Take a moment. If it's when, if it's speaking Craig Ferguson, the comedian has this hilarious thing. It's three questions. He says, does this need to be said? Does this need to be said by me? Does this need to be said by me now? And there goes like 95% of what you were going to say. Uh, so before you send the email, before you post, or even when you're going to social media, and and we know now how unhealthy social media is, not just for teenage girls, or for although for them it is dramatically and, and, and really tragically unhealthy, but ask yourself, why am i going to this platform you know what am what am i trying to feel or what am i s- stopping what am i trying to stop feeling what is my purpose for doing this and what is it what is its function in my life is it at all improving my well-being does it add to my life to go on to twitter you know, what happens when I get there? How do I feel when I'm there? You know, what is my heartbeat like? What is my belly like? You know, what are thoughts are going through my head when I'm on Twitter? Am I rage typing? Am I like killing the keyboard? And that's something to, to pay attention to, to, to ponder, you know, what is the function of this in my life? And so it's this broader discussion of, what cultivates well-being and happiness? And should, or maybe we shouldn't, but shouldn't we be doing things that are in the service of our well-being? And what are those things? And it just turns out that there's a whole boatload of science about this exact topic. And yes, there are things that, that are unique to you that aren't the same for me. However... We, we all can benefit. There's like 10 things we can all benefit from. And one of them is being more mindful, is cultivating present moment awareness. And as you said at the beginning, that non-judgment. So non-judgment of, of not just of others, but of ourselves and self-compassion, not judging our thoughts. I'm stupid. That was, that was a dumb thought. Or not judging our mind. I'm crazy. I can't do this mindfulness thing. My mind races too much. Well, guess what? It's because you're human. And that's what the mind does. The mind just generates like really wild thoughts pretty much all day long. And there's nothing wrong with you. So there are practices that we know can, can make us more calm and grounded and clear. And it's up to each one of us to just decide, is that what I want to pursue or not?
0: Right. Well, I mean, I think all of us, or I I would hope everybody listening to this wants to be more peaceful, wants to have more calm and serenity in their life. And I mean, I'm so glad you brought up social media. We could probably do a whole show just on that. I think now we're, you know, now that we're starting to see some of the ramifications and what's happening from getting sucked in, you know, judging or judging ourselves against others on social. Oh, so-and-so's yes. in Europe. They're having a great life. Everything's great. You know, and, and you would hope that we realize that that's not reality. You know, that's what they're putting out there. Um, and, but learning how to deal with that because this is all new, right. Relatively. I mean, as, as generations go on, we're still kind of learning how to deal with this and the implications that it has on our life. And I think you, we bring up some really uh, great points you know, in the book on, on how to deal with this. Um, You say that this is a self-improvement book, or no, it isn't a self-improvement book. Actually, you say it's a self-development book and you, you made that distinction. Yeah. And, And how would you phrase that? How would you describe it? Because
1: we're, you know, we all think there's something wrong with us and we need to, to, you know, improve ourselves. And there's, so there's, we'd like to begin from from this foundation of there's nothing wrong with you. So you're already whole. You're already whole. And you're up against a lot with, and particularly with social media. And I have a tween, so I know how how tough it is. And she's not on, she doesn't have a phone. She's not on social media, but it, the struggle is real. And we are 15 years into this experiment of, you know, the internet and less for social media. And it is not going well at all. It's really not going well for anybody. There's not a population for whom social media is like it's rocking for them. There really isn't Um, even the influencers, because you just see one part of that. Right. and, And make a judgment based on it and think just like you said, oh, their life is great because look, look where they are today and look how many followers they have. So you're already whole. And what we're looking to do if, if, you know, if you're on board with this is developing your strengths is developing your heart, that heart that, you know, has kind of been pounced on as all of our hearts have been that self-esteem that has, that has taken a beating, you know, and that, and that largely comes that beating of the self-worth, you know. It, it comes from ourselves, but it is the the social media is an accomplice in that. And it is up to each one of us to take the reins on our own life and to decide what what developing myself, my individual self is going to look like. You know what? How do I want to develop myself? What what would that mean? When I look at my well being, when I look at my sleep or my exercise, my social connections, um, my gratitude, all, all of these things that contribute to our self, to our well being, where do I need some work? You know, what isn't, what is a little subpar for me that I could be working on? For most women, it's self compassion is number one, because they are so hard on themselves and they are the person who is the doer for everybody in their lives. And they are like society's, you know, safety net. So women in particular, super hard, super hard on themselves and need to really begin from a place of self-compassion because it is because if you don't, then you're beginning from I need to be fixed. Right. So if you're beginning from wholeness and self-compassion, you're not fixing yourself.
0: And we're sold that 24 yes. seven we're marketed yes. to with that message that so we need to upsetting. fix this. We need to buy this. I mean, the ads that pop up in my feed are, are ridiculous. And that's what it's selling me, telling me that there's something wrong with me that I need to fix. I need to get this and just being mindful of that and trying to keep yourself on course. And I'm, I'm so glad you brought up women. Cause I wanted to ask you this. I mean we we are the you know the the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world right we're the ones that are like really keeping things afloat I think yeah. Yeah. and so just just for my own benefit since I have you on the podcast I seem to be the person in my family who is called on when people freak out you mm-hmm. know I'm I'm the one my my sister for example suffers from anxiety I think when someone says that I'm I'm like well who isn't you know everybody has anxiety some people handle it better than others. So I I worked for Hay House for a long time, and I learned from Louise Hay. And so I started working with affirmations. And one of my favorite ones that I I use um, for myself is, you know, when things are starting to go sideways, all is well, everything's working out for my highest good out of this situation, only good will come. I am safe. And I think those last three words are kind of the most important of that whole little affirmation, because it we really want to feel safe, right? I mean, this works for me, um might not work for other people. Some people make fun of affirmations like the whole Stuart Smalley thing, you know, mm-hmm. people like me and I think it's a little more than that. It's just kind of a reminder. I mean, what do you what do you think about that and their effectiveness? Well, first I I the phrase I am
1: safe is fa- it's fascinating that you say that. Um and it's because only we only you can determine if if you're safe. And part of um, corporate culture these days is, you know, safe spaces, psychologically safe. You hear the word safety all the time, and and creating safe spaces. And it's, you you can't you don't have to be feel feel safe a hundred percent of the time, but you can't say to somebody else that they're in a safe space. Or that you have created a safe space for somebody, so I'm perfectly on board when you say I am safe. And and for and I bring this up because when it comes to financial advisors, I've heard some advice to them to you know t- to create a safe space for your clients and tell them that they're safe. And you can't tell somebody that they're safe. You can do your best to create an environment where they're comfortable and they feel safe. But that's up to them. And it's also, uh, it varies dramatically, particularly if someone has a history of trauma. And some people don't feel safe in their own bodies most of the time because of that. And that's why I have that, you know, certification and trauma-sensitive mindfulness, because even just sitting with themselves... Closing their eyes, you know, way back in the day, mindfulness, you would hear it. It was about closing your eyes and taking a breath. Well, let me tell you, people with some people with a trauma history, don't they feel horrible closing your eyes. They feel very dysregulated, very upset, very agitated. And ditto for focusing on their breath. There's plenty of reasons why focusing on your breath might be very upsetting for you. So it's really important that we allow sort of whatever shows up for somebody to be acknowledged and accepted and be okay. And that includes not feeling 100% safe. That is up to them. So huge digression. But when it comes to words, and I also work with... um, a few hypnotherapists who are, who are also into neuro-linguistic programming and for them affirmations are huge. And in mindfulness we don't do a ton of affirmations but I will say here's the thing about language. Just like your behavior it it is in your brain. So you're creating these habits, you're creating these neural pathways. And because we are humans and we have evolved to constantly be on the lookout for threats to our safety and our survival, we are always on the lookout for negative things. And so there is no shortage in our day of being anxious or fearful about something negative. And it's really just your brain trying to help you out. And it's not an enemy. It is not an enemy. It's your brain saying, hey, this could kill you. But as it turns out, most of those things probably aren't going to kill you. So mindfulness helps you notice when your brain is trying to help you, but it's kind of gone off the deep end and your situation really isn't something that's a threat to your survival. So creating language for yourself is actually helpful. That includes "I I I am whole. I am safe. I'm okay. Part of the practices of self-compassion are two things that freak people out. One of them is what you just did. You said, I am safe. And another one is holding yourself, which make, which people just go just off the rails about. When I say, put your hands on your heart, and they're like, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> or put your hands on your face. Or you know, apply a little bit of pressure to your forehead and your heart. And just tell yourself, I'm okay now. I'm safe. I'm doing the best I can. And that is some hard work for people.
0: It is. It it is so
1: hard to, to, and I'm getting chills just doing it right now. I have my hands on my heart. I'm applying a little pressure and just saying, I'm okay in this moment, I am okay. I am safe and I am whole. And, and even though I've been doing it for years, part of me is like,
0: I don't know if it's true. So right? it is, it is hard.
1: It is really hard.
0: It is hard. And, and it's practice, like you said, but it's, and it's okay that it's hard.
1: You know, it's okay. Like there's this little girl inside me who is still feeling unsafe for whatever reason and I'm here to try to comfort her, and you know it's not easy, and it's okay that it's not easy, and it gets easier and then it gives you confidence. it gives you confidence and and there's a knowing that you're okay. So you go from sort of wishing that you're okay and hoping that you're okay and i'm I'm saying the words, and maybe the words were like take someday and with practice and with a genuine intention it does, you know, take and you really embrace that you're okay and you're safe.
0: Right. In this moment. That's so interesting. And safe, uh, safe is, I guess, a kind of a, a loaded word and how it works for different people. I just, I'll share something that's kind of funny. So one of the people that was freaking out one day, my sister called me. And so I'm thinking, all right, I'm going to try to help you. Let's do like a, a mindfulness exercise together. We'll try to do a little meditation. I go, okay, imagine that you're just floating on the water and everything's peaceful. And she's like, no, I can't do that. What about sharks? There's going to be a shark. I'm like, okay, okay. We're not in the water. <laughs> it's like We're on a park bench in a beautiful, you know, so me thinking that being by the water would be safe to her, she went right to shark attack. You know, I, you know, I might do that <laughs> myself. I have to say. Um,
1: now, I, I will funny. tell you what you can do, and what we do in mindfulness, because we don't do a heck of a lot of, particularly in MBSR. And and I want to circle back to something you said at, at the very beginning with John Kevinson and the definition in Merriam, Miriam uh, uh, Webster, because mindfulness means different things to different people. And so I'm very clear that my training is in mindfulness-based stress reduction. I give the definition, which happens to be the definition you gave. But for a lot of people, it's about visualizing and affirmations. And it, that's that's really not the, the curriculum. And what instead we do, and the same with mindful schools, um, and I'm certified by, by them too, and this is what I do with kids, uh, and you can do this with anybody, is you bring attention to their present moment experience of their body because they have one. Even, you know, me back in the day, not knowing I was pregnant, if you said to me, plant your feet on the floor right now and tell me what your feet feel like contacting the floor. You know, where do you feel contact? Where do you feel weight? Where do you feel gravity in your body? You know, I would have answers to those. And if I said, oh, I don't feel anything, you could say to me, okay, stop your feet a bunch of feet, a bunch of times. And now tell me what you've, and my feet would feel like throbbing or hot or whatever. So what you do is you bring people into the present through their senses. And the most common way you may have heard of is a sort of sensory countdown, which is to name five things they can see, um, four things they can touch, three things they can hear, two things they can smell, and one thing they can taste. And so, first of all, they're trying to remember all that. So their brain, so their mind is being brought, you know, to the the executive functioning to their prefrontal cortex. And whatever they were upset about is is taken sort of a backseat to what the heck do I see right now? And you know you say, describe, describe five things you see. So they've got to like pick the five things and then they're, you know, describing them and rifling around for adjectives. And as they do that and they go through their senses, whatever state that they were in, you know, escalates. and you and it's different for everybody because they see five different things and hear five different things. And if you get the, the order wrong, who cares? The, the point is get into your body and tell me what it feels like right now. And we begin with the feet for kids because your feet don't have feelings or thoughts. So if you said, what does your heart and stomach feel like? Like that's where all my feels are right now. So I don't want to go there. You know, unless you really want somebody to get into how they feel, you if you're trying to de-escalate somebody, you're trying to to move them from what they're concentrating on, their fear, their anxiety, what they're upset about, to something else, but something that is real. So when you say picture the the ocean, it's not real. Plus, when they picture it, it invites all kinds of other imagine- imagination cues. Ocean equals sharks equals right. danger, and now suddenly, you know. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> right. So you know, I go from like I was trying to calm somebody to <laughs> their are they're like replaying Jaws in their head. Uh, so go through the body, you know, through the senses to the present moment and that is usually what helps. I've heard advisor advisors saying, "Oh, just tell your client, you know, breathe with me." And that's the last thing you want to do. And if somebody's really upset, breathing might make them worse. So, for your sister, for the people in in, you know, your life, one thing you can do is say, "Well, let's work on finding, you know, two things that are reliably good for you that that help to kind of de-escalate you, that help to calm you or center you. And it I don't know what it's going to be for them. It could be the sensory thing. It could be breathing. There's a kind of breath um, where you like breathe in through your nose for a count of four, and then you kind of linger at the top of the inhale for a count of two and exhale for a count of eight. The key being... Double your exhale. The exhale should be double the length of the inhale. And what that does is that triggers the parasympathetic nervous system. And so you go from that fight or flight state to rest and digest, where you're more calm. So, but not, it's not through the mouth and it's not an instant inhale exhale, because that just invites hyperventilating. And so it's this real intentional deep breath through the nose and that lingering, not like a stiff holding of the breath, but like a lingering at the top. And in a, and a slow, long, luxurious exhale and a lingering at the bottom and starting again. Now, your sister might get upset by that. So while you're not activated, while people are not upset, is when you try out these things so that when they are upset, they can go to something that reliably has worked for them. So the worst time to try to calm somebody is in the middle of when they're upset and you have no idea what calms them. Right, right. So you would go with the five things. You would go with like, tell, you know, hey, let's just tell me five, just name five things you can see right now and describe them to me. And they start describing you, say, tell tell me a little more about tell me a little more about that. And what can you, you know, what can you, what do you hear right
0: now? Tell me something that you can hear. And, and it kind of just calms and calms and calms. Those are great, great tips. And the book is so experiential. I I love the exercises and the things that you're, that you're describing right now. It's funny. I I was talking to a um, anger anger management, um, counselor that worked in a prison, like, you know, maximum mm-hmm. security with these big, you know, angry, pissed off people. And he said that the worst thing that you could tell somebody when they're, you know, angry is to calm down it's to calm down. But oh, yeah. You don't say that. So yeah. like, okay, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll remember that if if I'm in that situation. Um, and, and talking about the exercises, I love that you shared that. I mean, when you first start a retreat, cause you, you teach this to people. So mm-hmm. here you are with a room full of type a, wound tight, you know, financial advisors. I mean, do you take them through some of these exercises like right in the beginning to to set the tone? Oh yeah. And that works, right? And it's like this hugely awkward, uncomfortable moment. You you have to have an
1: incredible kind of um, ability to be in awkward silence because there is a lot of that. And I take them just just like at the beginning of the book, I take them through like a 10 minute arrival exercise where they, you know, arrive to. So, yeah, they're there like your body's here. Right. But where, where the heck is your mind? And are you thinking about where you're going to be? Are you thinking about like, why am I here anyway? This is dumb. You have all kinds of biases and judgments and expectations. Like, are you even listening to me? Um, and over 10 minutes and and it sometimes takes 10 minutes. Um, they manage to have this glimpse, and it's and it's really truly a glimpse for most of them at first, unless they've practiced before. This glimpse that, like, oh, there's another way I can be in. Re- I can be, you know, there's another way of being me. Sitting here, there's another way to listen. Like, there's this, like, you can listen with all of yourself and not in order to say something.
0: This must be so satisfying for you as a, a teacher teaching these techniques. When you see this group of uh, wound up tight people come in and then when it clicks, right. And, and they get it. You, you must love that moment. There is. Um,
1: I try not to strive about it. It's uh, it's satisfying. It's I'll, I'll leave it at that, you know, yeah. it's like, oh, but it's, but it's because of. it's not me though. This is the thing. It is because they are allowing it. They are being vulnerable and they are allowing themselves to be. And some of them for the first time.
0: Yeah, it's important the art of allowing, I know that's a book title and I can't remember who wrote it, but was oh, it really? That's great. <laughs> it is. Oh, I, I think it might be Abraham Hicks. Um, but it, yeah, the, the art of allowing yourself that permission, I think is so important. And and one more thing I wanted to ask you. So in the book, which I think this is great because I've been in like the self-development world for a while now. And so I've seen a lot of the pop psychology and, and, stuff out there you you know some helping people to varying degrees but I really like in this book you make the distinction between positive psychology and mindfulness and I love that you stress that equanimity is the name of the game you don't get to equanimity through positivity and I just wanted to ask you about that like trying to tell yourself cheer up cheer up you know yeah that's not going to bring you to equanimity no I have a I have you know a problem with that sort of
1: you know i also have a problem with the phrase toxic positivity so I, it's so i don't i'm not really like on that side but i will say that if you're constantly grasping for the positive you're going to be constantly disappointed because you might find it but like everything it it goes away You know, so when we do mindfulness practice, one of the basic practices is focused attention and you focus on a neutral anchor point, something in your experience. And people say like, oh, but I want to focus on, you know, an image of my daughter because I love her. Great. Well, two things. A, your daughter isn't actually in your head. So that's an image that you have to keep conjuring. And B, everything that is positive goes away just like everything that's negative goes away. So if you cannot grasp for the positive, not push away the negative and not ignore the neutral, and if you can put out the welcome mat for your entire, the entire range of your human experience, whatever it is, positive, negative, neutral, and you can greet all of those experiences sensations people thoughts the same way and accept all of them and observe them as they come and go that if there is to be said to be a goal you know that is the where equanimity comes from it doesn't come from positivity
0: right and you it can't doesn't. bypass and i i think that it's important for people to not to try to force themselves, you know, I'm going to be happy. I'm going to force myself. I'll do these affirmations. I'll do the mirror work. I'll say, I love you. I don't know if you've ever tried that. (laughs) That's an, it's an interesting exercise. Um, Something that uh, Louise Hay, when I I worked for her company and she wrote about it a lot. uh, Some people really like to do it where you look in the mirror and, and that's a hard thing for people to do, look in their eyes and say that they love themselves and that's where the they'll make fun of it you know? Yeah. Um, but I think it can, it can be helpful in, in some ways. But yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you on trying to force it. It's not going to get you to that equanimity place. That you And you to have be. to
1: be able to befriend all of your emotions and experiences. Like you, you, you have to be able to meet them and experience them and and work with them. Life isn't just about the good stuff. Right. You know, it's, but but the good stuff I think is
0: being open to all the stuff. Yes, that's, that's the human experience, right? We're all gonna experience death, pain, sickness, you know, all of those things with ourselves and our, and our loved ones. And I think being able to handle it as best we can and and what you're doing is helping people to do that so i think you're doing some really important work in the world thank you and we have this phrase um you may have heard it that pain is
1: inevitable but suffering is optional yes and so like things are going to happen but we don't need to make them worse for ourselves but ignoring them doesn't help either
0: no no, th- it's been so great to talk to you about this. I could, nice. I could blab about this all day long, but I'm sure you've got things to do. Oh, but I thank do you for people- having me. No, this is great. I mean, what you're doing is important. I hope people pick up the book, Mindfulness for Financial Advisors. Can apply to anybody, but if you know a financial advisor, I'm going to tell my guy over at Raymond James to pick this up, mm-hmm. but tell people to um, get in touch with you. How is the best way for people to find you? I've just married
1: now. Now, you know, Mary Martin, as you may know, depending on how old anybody is, is a super famous name. So it's www.MaryMartinPhD.com. And um, Mary Martin You can find me. You can find the book. You can find all of my classes and uh, there's loads. I think there's 25 free guided meditations there. And it's from two minutes to to 50 minutes long. And
0: they are all free and your website's great. I was checking it out earlier. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.